Father, um, I believe that there's lots of truths that you've been trying to get through to our hearts. Perhaps this is the night that you'll do it. I know that it often depends on how open we are to receive. For Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Lord, there's a number of ways that we could hear tonight. We could simply be here to glean information. Or we could be here to receive the transformation of your spirit. Lord, you know every single thing that we're going to face this week. Every person we're going to meet. Every obstacle that will be in our path. Every blessing. And here is our opportunity to be equipped for what you know will transpire. So we pray, Lord, that you would equip us. That these truths that we would land upon tonight would be useful to us the rest of our lives, but especially for what we face this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus took a child and set the child before the disciples as an example of dependence and humility. I'll tell you, I often look at the faith of children and I think, you know, I think they know a little more than we do. They've kind of got this thing together a lot more than we think. And tonight we open up with the counting the cost of discipleship. And I was surprised lately about hearing one of my son's friends in the neighborhood that he goes to school with. Nathan's been evangelizing some of the kids at school. He'll often come home and say, yeah, I, I saved that kid down the street <laughs> or that kid at school. I'd you know, try to explain to him you know, that really God saved him, but that's just his way of expressing it. I know what he means. But um, there's this one kid that is a friend of his at school and He's raised in a Jewish family. So Nathan's been telling him about Jesus. And he came and he said, I prayed with him. He, he's born again. He's saved. He accepted Jesus Christ. And I'm excited, but you know, one eyebrow goes up and I'm going, you know, I wonder what mom and dad think. Well, he told me what mom and dad thought. He said, yeah, he went home and he told his mom and dad, I'm a Christian. Mom said, no, you're not. You're Jewish. He said, no, I'm not. I'm a Christian. He said, no, as long as you're in this house, I mean, you can do what you want when you grow up, but as long as you're in this house, we're going to raise you in the Jewish faith. This nine-year-old said, that's fine, but I am a Christian. And when he told me that, I blew my mind. You know, it's not like I'm trying to disrupt families or Nathan has no intention to do so, but it seemed like this little guy, this little friend understood the cost and he was willing to pay it. Now there's three guys that come to Jesus Christ. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem with his disciples. He's on the way down to Judea. He has passed from the Golan Heights up by Caesarea Philippi through the Galilee, through Samaria, and he's on his way to Judea. And on the road as he's going, three guys come up to him. And Jesus has an encounter with three of them. We don't know if they came 
simultaneously or if they were in consecutive order or just on the way to Jerusalem. But three guys come and they're almost disciples. They came so close to becoming disciples, but they did not become disciples. They did not fulfill the conditions that Jesus required of them to follow him. And Luke sets this forth. And it is so different, I think, from much modern evangelism. You know, we just want to quickly sign them up, sign this card, raise your hand, pray this prayer. All right, good, wow, great. Jesus, it seems, told people, no, wait a minute. You must count the cost. You must count the cost. And he wasn't willing to have a quick enlistment. He wanted people to know what they were doing. To be able to say in the midst of persecution, no, I am a Christian. And I am going to stay a Christian. And so they come. In verse 57, it happened that as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Let's call this guy Mr. Too Quick. Now, at first, it sounds great. I mean, if it would have been you or I, perhaps, I would just say, hey, great. You want to follow? Join the ranks, man. Follow. Get in line. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. It sounds very enthusiastic. It's the kind of person you certainly don't want to let go. That kind of enthusiasm, that kind of hearty attitude you want to capitalize on and encourage and fan the flame. Jesus said to him, Now listen to this evangelistic response. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I remember as a kid, I'd see army commercials on TV, and you know, those commercials are really glitzy. And you look at them, and it's like, wow. That's the life. I'm not saying it's not the life. I do respect people in the armed services, but let's face it. Those commercials don't tell the whole story, right? You're enamored with the uniform, and they do the light, the side lighting just so, so that that guy stands out bigger than life. And they show in the Air Force that you fly the planes, and, you know, and uh, you're enamored with it. The commercial doesn't tell you about night watches or getting up at four in the morning or perhaps going to battle and receiving wounds. There's not much about, now let us tell you what it's really going to be like and the demand and the discipline. And so this guy's just ready to enlist. But he hasn't heard the full story yet. And Jesus tells him, well, foxes have their place. They have holes to go to. Birds of the air, they have their nests. But I'm itinerant. I'm on the way to Jerusalem. If you're going to follow me, it's not going to be easy. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that this guy was a scribe, which is revealing. Scribes were literate. They were skilled in writing. They were educated. And scribes came about during the Babylonian captivity. Ezra was a scribe at a time when they weren't practicing ceremonial law because they had no temple in Babylon, the scribe became the central office. These were the people who read and interpreted and often taught the Bible. They would record events. They would make documents. 
and they were probably very well taken care of. This guy was accustomed to having a nice setup, a nice living. And so Jesus said, let me just tell you what it's going to be like. You want to follow me? Great. But foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then we don't have the response. We don't know what happened to this guy. Verse 59, then he said to another, and this guy is interesting, because Jesus Christ himself initiates the conversation. The first guy just comes up and says, oh Lord, whatever, I'll do whatever. The second guy, Jesus personally calls. What an honor. What an honor for Jesus to walk up to you like he did to the early apostles, the disciples like Matthew, and say, Matthew, follow me. Oh, what an honor that would be. And here Jesus does this to this guy. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Let's call this guy Mr. Too Slow. He's kind of the opposite. The first guy goes, hey, I'm ready. Let's go for it. Jesus goes, slow down. Are you really ready for it? Second guy, Jesus says, follow me. He says, well, I want to go bury my father first. Let the dead bury their dead, Jesus said. Now, I know that sounds callous. And if we have no background, we would read that and say, wow, what a cruel thing. The guy just wants to go to his dad's funeral. And it's as if Jesus is saying, forget the funerals, man. But that's not what he's saying. This is a very common phrase. Even if your dad was still alive, it was the responsibility of the oldest male son of the house to live at home and bear the brunt of taking care of mom and dad until the father died, whereupon the eldest son would set the affairs of the house in order, taking care of his mom in her old age. Then the oldest son would receive the inheritance. So it's as if he's saying, I've got a duty to perform. I'd like to follow you, but there will come a day when I have financial support. My dad will die. I'll take care of him. When he dies and I have the wherewithal, then I'll do it. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. I think the best way to translate this would be, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. In other words, there are certain things that spiritually dead people can do as well as spiritually alive people can do. Leave to the spiritually dead the things that anybody could do. But there are certain things that only spiritually alive people can do, and that is follow me and preach the kingdom of God. Spiritually dead people can't do that. There's a greater life and a greater death at stake here, and that's spiritual death. Let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. This guy was a little too reluctant. He was too slow. And uh, I think this speaks of the procrastinator. How many people I have met, and you've met them too. There's always some line, some excuse. Well, you know, I understand what you're saying, man, but I don't think I'm quite ready for it. Well, that's good. I mean, you should count the cost, but you can procrastinate forever because there's always something else to be done. Well, I'm just too young right now. I'll wait till I'm, you know, older and I 
uh, I can have fun now, and after I've had my fun and I'm older, then I'll make this decision to follow God. But, you know, let me first have some fun. But a person who makes that excuse finds that when he gets to be about middle-aged, he'll say something like, well, you know, I'd like to do it, but I'm too busy now. I've got kids, and I've got plans, I've got responsibilities, payments. Can't do it. But when I'm really old... And then often people have had such a habit and made so many ongoing decisions that now it's like cutting a groove in the record. They're so used to saying no to God that by the time they're older, it's a lot easier to say no to God than yes to God. And the excuse is, but I'm just too old now. You know, that's, that's for the young people. The real problem was the words, me first. Follow me. Let me first, Lord. You can't follow God with you first. He'll never be Lord as long as you're first. There's nothing wrong with loving your parents. There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide for your parents. But you must never let even the closest earthly relationship hinder your relationship with God. Um, Jesus said something that when I first read, I was kind of agitated at. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. From this day forward, a man will be divided against his father and mother and his entire family. He'll be hated by his own household. I didn't like that when I read it. I didn't want that. And yet I found it to be true in my own family. I found that when I became a Christian, my whole family felt alienated and slighted. They were angry. I'd share the gospel. Who do you think you are? Just skip. But save now. What do you mean save now? You've always been saved. Are you implying that we're not? I remember when my parents came to me and said, Stop going to that church, that Calvary something. Stop reading your Bible. You've, you've gotten weird since you've been going to that place and reading that Bible. It's not healthy. We don't want you to do it anymore. And I remember saying, well, I certainly love you and I don't want to alienate you, but I've got to. And if it's best that I leave home and be on my own, I'll leave home and be on my own. I remember when my wife and I were getting married. And my parents didn't come to my wedding because it wasn't a part of their faith. And it wasn't my mom's idea. She wanted to show up. She was behind, you know, whatever. But my dad was hardened against it. That alienation. I knew that following Jesus Christ in this way is causing these repercussions. As much as I wanted the approval of my parents, I wasn't going to sacrifice my approval of God in my life for anybody's approval. It's not worth it. So they didn't show up. The two people that you want didn't show up. But I wrote them a letter and I said, Dad, I sure love you and respect you. You're a man of principle and I respect you for the principles that you hold dear to. I don't agree with them. 
But I respect you for being that adamant that you would follow through and not come to my wedding. And I want you to know I have no feelings of bitterness against you. I love you. All is forgiven. Not that he asked for it. I just thought I'll, I'll, I'll do that. There are certain times when you make a decision and other people won't like it. But you can never say, oh, but me first. Oh, but them first. No, it's God first. You see, these are terms of discipleship. Mr. Too Quick, oh, he had sounding, sounded like he had the right idea. Yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. But he really wasn't ready. Mr. Too Slow was, well, one day maybe, but me first. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Time to get going. Now there's a third guy. Let's call him Mr. Halfway. He kind of sounds okay, but he wasn't ready for a full commitment. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But, now it's like he's trying to negotiate the heavenly contract. God, let's come to terms here. Let me counteroffer. I will follow you, but again, listen to these words. Let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, that didn't sound unreasonable to say goodbye. Elijah the prophet when he called Elisha to be the guy who would sort of take over his ministry, this happened. Elijah the Tishbite came and found Elisha out plowing with 12 yoke of oxen out in the fields, and Elisha was with the 12th oxen, and Elijah just sort of walked by him and threw his mantle on Elisha. This is not a fireplace mantle. This is a piece of clothing, of course. <laughs> Which meant, I have selected you to take over my ministry when I'm out of here. And Elisha said, please let me go back and kiss my father and my mother. And Elisha said, go, for what have I done to you? You know, do it, go for it, do what you need to do. So what Elisha did is he actually made a huge farewell meal. He took one of the oxen, killed one of the oxen, used the implements of plowing, the plow itself, cut it up and use that as the fire to make the meal. In other words, I am breaking ties with my past. I'm burning my bridges. I'm not going back to plowing oxen anymore. And it was a farewell meal to say goodbye. So the guy says, let me just say goodbye, bid them farewell. But Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, strong words. One translation puts what we just read this way. Let me go and ask permission. Let me ask my mom and dad, Mom and dad, can I go follow Jesus? Let me see if they want me to. If I get their approval, then I'll go. Their approval was more important. That's one possibility. We know that he was looking back rather than looking ahead. That's the idea. He was looking back to the security of home, the security of mom and dad, their approval. A lot of people look back. They're afraid to look forward and follow Jesus because they remember the good old days. Oh, look what I'm leaving. Look at all these good things that I'm leaving. You can't plow a straight furrow in a field by looking backwards. You have to look ahead. The watchword of the kingdom of God is forward, not backward. Forgetting those things which are behind, we press forward to those things which are ahead of us. 
Sometimes people are tempted to look back and think of those good old days. Oh, oh, I gave up so much to follow Jesus. Oh, really? You gave up hell? You gave up emptiness? You gave up sin? Oh, yeah, you're to be applauded. You gave up so much. Look what you've gotten in return. Don't look back. Set your hand to the plow. Go for it. There was a uh, college graduate from one of the Ivy League schools who felt called by God to be a missionary in a third world country. And his family, a very aristocratic family on the east, found out about it. And they were so upset. And they said, how could you waste your life? How could you waste your education? We put money and time into you, refining you, educating you. We don't approve of you being a missionary. But he went to the mission field, poured out his life for Jesus Christ, and he got sick. And he was on his deathbed. And of course, he probably imagined in his mind, my parents are going to think they were right. I wasted my life. I got here. I shared the gospel with these people. I'm getting sick. I'm dying. They're going to think, see, you wasted your whole life. You could be here and be saved. He told them he was dying, but he said at the end of his letter, no remorse, no returning, no regrets. Jesus is saying, you follow me. Don't look back. Don't have your hand in the past and try to walk forward in the future. You'll never make it. So no man, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now chapter 10 is, you could sort of divide it up. And you could look at chapter 10 as a description of the Christian life in terms of three places. In terms of three places. And in terms of three roles. The first place is the harvest field. That's all the way from verses 1 to about verse 24. The harvest field. Sending them out to the harvest fields. Secondly, the highways of life. And finding those that you have the opportunity to share with. And then finally, the home where Mary and Martha are in the last part of the chapter. Now, in um, verse 1, he takes 70 others. Luke is the only guy that records the sending out of 70. The others record sending 12 out. And maybe you've read this and thought, man, there's a contradiction in the Bible. You know, Matthew, Mark talk about Jesus sending his 12 disciples out into different villages. Here he sends 70 out. Luke records the 70, but he also records the sending of the 12 back in chapter 9. He records the same story that the other gospel writers have, but now he includes the 70 and the other guys don't. And they're different stories, by the way. There's similarities to them because it's the same master sending them out. But there are differences. The 12 were sent around Galilee. The 70 were sent past Samaria into Judea. And of course, there were more of them than the, than the 12. Question, why is it that Luke records the sending of the 70 and he's the only one that does it? I have a theory. Well, my theory is this. Back in Genesis chapter 10, it is the history 
of the nations. It's called the table of nations. And there are 70 nations that are listed. And it's sort of the table of nations where people have gone and scattered throughout the entire world. Luke is a Gentile. Matthew is a Jew. Mark also is a Jew. Matthew has the target audience of Judaism. There's a correspondence, 12 disciples. There were 12 sons of Jacob, the children of Israel. Jesus told the 12, don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 12 corresponding to 12. The 70, as written about by Luke, him being a Gentile, wanting to show that the gospel is to all of the nations, sends out not just 12, but he sends 70 out into all the villages. Sort of analogous to the 70 nations or the gospel going out into all the world. At least that's a theory that I have. It may or, not, may, or may not be true. You can scrap it if you want to. And he said to them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Now, do you think that ratio has changed much since then? Do you think the harvest is any less great? Do you think the laborers are any less few than they were then? I think it still holds to be pretty accurate. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Notice that Jesus didn't say, therefore go. He said, therefore pray. Now, he did tell his disciples to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. But before you go, you got to pray to find out where to go. Prayer comes before going. Action, unless it's bathed in prayer, may be self-imposed action. And a lot of people I know have burned out in quote-unquote serving God. I meet so many people who go, man, I was just burned out. I was serving so much. And I think if you're serving where God wants you to serve, at least I found I don't get burned out. It's sheer joy. It's a blast. Now, the things, when I start doing things God hadn't called me to do and start saying yes to everything that God hasn't told me to say yes to, it's weary. But when you say the yes what, to what Jesus has called you to do, it's a blast. So pray first. Therefore, pray. And notice, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest. He didn't say, pray that it would be an easier job. Now pray for more laborers, not more foremen, not more supervisors, not more onlookers, more laborers. And I do often pray that God would raise up laborers who would just be willing to serve and go for it. Go your way. See, he said pray, and then he said go. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. In the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, it's sort of corresponding to this, but he sends out the 12. He says the same thing. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. And then he says, now go. And this is Jesus' pattern. Pray and then go. This is what happens. When you begin to pray, in prayer, you start developing a burden for the people you pray for. I find that the more I pray for a nation or a people group or a city, I start getting a heart for them. Pretty soon I'm wanting to go. But I bet the disciples didn't think that they would be called to go when Jesus first said pray. 
they probably went something like this. Okay, we'll take you at your word, Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray. I pray you'd raise up laborers. Oh, just send people out to do the work of the ministry. And then Jesus came up to them and said, your prayer's been answered. Go. (laughs) Me? Yeah. I'm answering your prayer. I'm sending you. You prayed for it. You've got a heart for it. Now go for it. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Ooh. Now wait a minute. I didn't know following you was going to include this. Wolves are predatory creatures. They pounce on lambs. And you're sending me out as a lamb amongst wolves? Why don't you send me out as a wolf among lambs? I know a lot of Christians that try to do that. Let me see who I can pounce and beat up in the name of God. I send you out as lambs among wolves. There's a lot of wolves out there. When I I was a boy, we had a a dog. It was part German shepherd and, um, or excuse me, it was part a husky and it was part wolf. We got it from this guy who bred these dogs and beautiful dog. We called him Schultz. And a strange thing happened to Schultz because he was part wolf. He, though he was trained to be domestic and to be a house pet, there were a couple nights where he didn't come home. And he would come home and he'd have blood on his lips and his paws. We didn't know what was going on and we found that he had gotten out and he had killed some of the neighborhood cats and other animals. And he wouldn't eat the dog food that we set in front of him. He only wanted to hunt in the wild. He only wanted fresh, the fresh blood of other animals. And so we took him back to the guy who bred it. And he said, you know, this often happens. These wolves that are, you know, part whatever and part wolf often will revert back to that nature. You try to domesticate them. But once they have that taste of blood, you'll never get them to eat, you know, kenoration again. And so we had to give him away, give him back to this guy who would keep him and give him meat and, and, you know, train him again in a special way. But he reverted back as a predatory creature. Jesus said, I'm setting you in the midst of wolves. Now, when Jesus sent out the 12, he told them this, but then he said, be wise as serpents and be harmless as doves. I'm sending you out in a very precarious situation. You're going to be hunted. You're going to be hated by all nations. So... Be wise as a serpent, and to ancient peoples, a serpent was a symbol of wisdom and craftiness. And a dove was always a symbol of gentleness. Be wise, but be gentle. Don't be too hard, but use your noggin. Unfortunately, there are people who try to be as wise as a dove, which is not too bright, and as gentle as a snake, which is not too soft and gentle. Instead of thinking and praying and waiting and discerning the situation with a sweet gentleness and reasonableness or an appropriateness about it, they just want to get in there, not think, and hammer hard. And sometimes the gospel message can be controverted. You just reverse the intended effect. Jesus was a great example at Appropriateness. Again, the illustration of 
They came to him to trap him and said, is it lawful to pay taxes? If he would have said, no, it's not, he would have had a lot of enemies. If he would have said, yes, it is, he would have had a lot of enemies. So he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God what belongs to God. They got the message and it was in a non-offensive kind of a way. There was an appropriateness about his behavior. Now he says, carry neither money bag, sack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. The idea is don't pack too heavily. Now, later on, he'll say pack, take swords, and, you know, the whole bit. But right now, I want you to learn to trust God, like chapter 9, sending out the 12. Trust God. Just go on your own travel pack light. I've learned the last couple of years when I travel overseas to pack light, I always like to take only carry-on. I don't like to pack anything in the airplane because I don't like to wait in those lines, number one. And number two, I don't want to be a victim of a lost suitcase. I'd rather be able to get off the plane, have what I need, wash it while I'm there, and just book it, go for it. There's wisdom in packing light. But then Jesus said, don't even greet people along the road. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Greet no one along the road. Why is this? Well, in those days, you know, when people would greet each other, they wouldn't just put out their hand and go, hey, man, give me five, bro. Shake your hand and move on. Oriental greetings were very long and time-consuming. When a man met his friend, he would ask over and over again, how he's doing? How is your family doing? It's been so long since I've seen you. Peace and prosperity to you and to yours. And how grateful he is to see his face, and he may never see his face again. And they would do this sometimes ten times. And they'd bow to the ground. They became almost obsequious, just buttery. It just got, it was a waste of time. So Jesus was saying, you've got a journey. Don't let anything hinder you. Don't get involved in all of the long rigmarole. Just go for it. Do what I've called you to do. But whatever house you enter, first say, shalom. Peace to this house. You can give them that greeting. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in that same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Now that's not always easy to do when you travel overseas. I've been in some strange places, and I know many of you who have traveled as missionaries have been in places and... You know, we've heard growing up all our lives that when they set food in front of you, it's always polite to eat whatever's put in front of you. You could offend them. And um, I've eaten some things. Well, I'll tell you what, there are certain times I haven't eaten them. I said, no, thank you. And I tried to be very polite. And uh, um, I, I don't think they were quite offended. I think they understood. I'm from another culture. And I was with another American buddy. He said, you know, you better eat that or you're going to offend him. And I said, you know what? If I eat that and I hurl, I think I'll offend them more. The whole idea here, of course, is Jesus was getting them to trust God that whatever city they would go into, God would bring the right people to provide for their needs. They'd stay in that house. I think one of the neatest things you can do if you're single and you've got time is to just go on a mission trip somewhere. Go on a short-term mission trip and watch God provide for you. And be open. In 1977, after my brother died, 
I decided that I needed a break. So I called another Christian brother down in Palm Springs, California, and I said, let's take three months off. He said, what? I said, yeah, let's take three months off. I got this Toyota truck with a camper shell on it. Let's just drive around the country, and let's see who God puts in our path. And so we did it. We traveled to national parks. We traveled to campground, take out the guitar, start playing, and people would gather, and we'd get into conversations, got to lead people to Christ, watch God provide in some unique ways. It's a faith builder. It's great if you've got the time and the uh, money to do it, to get out and go on some of the mission trips that we have down to Mexico or overseas and watch how God provides. And then Jesus said to them, and heal the sick. He was giving them the power to pull this off. Heal the sick who are there. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out to the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. We covered that in chapter 9. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin, or Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a great while ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be thrust down to Hades. Jesus takes three cities of his time and compares them to three ancient cities under God's judgment. One of the cities was Sodom. We know all about Sodom during Abraham's time. It was one of the five cities down in the plain, down by the Dead Sea. They were known for inordinate, unnatural lust, as the men of the city wanted to have homosexual relations with the male angels who came in the city. They were also known for their pride, and God judged that city. Tyre was inside, and we're up on the coast, up in Phoenicia. Uh, we remember that David hired some of the craftsmen and the carpenters of Tyre to take cedar wood to make the temple in Jerusalem and some of the, some of the stone cutters of Tyre. Uh, Jezebel was the daughter of a Phoenician king from Tyre, and she brought Baal worship, pagan worship, into Israel. It was a Canaanite city, and in Ezekiel 28, I think it's uh, proclaimed as being under the judgment of God. And so he says, you know, if these cities would have seen what you have seen, they would have repented a long time ago. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is that Chorazin, or Chorazin, however you want to pronounce it, there's no record in the entire New Testament that any mighty works were done there. Yet Jesus infers here that they were done, and they were so great that if they were done in any other ancient city, they would have repented. If the mighty works which were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a great while ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at judgment than for you. Now, their sin was not that they attacked Jesus Christ. Their sin is they ignored him. It was indifference. The sin of indifference is a great sin. There are people who wouldn't say, I'm against Jesus. They'd say, I have nothing against him. But <laughs> no use losing sleep over him. Let Jesus be Jesus. You do what you want, and they'll be indifferent. Jesus said this would be the condition of the earth when he comes back. 
As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage. It was just business as usual. No concern about God. The sin of indifference. Then, of course, Capernaum in verse 15, that was the headquarters of Jesus. More miracles and more teaching was done in this city than any other city in the life of Jesus. Jairus' daughter was healed. The nobleman's son was healed. The centurion's servant was healed. The guy was led to the house by his four buddies. He was healed. Peter's mother-in-law. On and on and on. Jesus pronounces a judgment. If you go to Israel today and you look at Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, they're rubble. There's nothing left of them. They're just stones left out in the open, overgrown with weeds. In fact, nobody knew they were there until recent archaeological excavations dug the dirt that had piled up over the rubble. They're gone. It's just country. Jesus said to Capernaum, you're exalted to heaven, you will be thrust down to hell. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Remember that. When people are angry at you for your witness and your love for Jesus Christ, don't take it too personally. They're really mad at God. You're just his rep. You represent him. People, many of them are angry at God. They have a lot of questions and they're bitter, they're angry, they don't want God in their life and you represent them and they'll take it out on you. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now can you imagine their joy? To be sent out as very simple people and come back with the stories of people being healed, demons being cast out. They were on cloud nine. I remember the first time I led somebody to Jesus Christ. I didn't think I could do it. And I came back. I said, man, it worked. What worked? They became a Christian. And I witnessed to them. I led them in a prayer. I was jazzed. And you know what? I'm still jazzed. I still get excited when I am able to share with a person and watch them come to Christ. So exciting. Or to pray for a person. And watch a person be legitimately, physically healed. When I have seen that, when I have been a part of that, it's always brought tears to my eyes. Now, I'm a skeptic, and I think a lot of so-called healings are so-called healings. But I've watched legitimate healings where I've, or people have prayed for other people, and I've seen it before my eyes. I've seen it medically documented. It is so thrilling. It's a faith booster. Or to see those demon-possessed be subject to the name of Jesus Christ and a person possessed of a devil be freed of demon spirits. Wow. These guys were stoked, man. They're subject to us in your name. In the book of Acts chapter 19, there were Jewish exorcists who thought they could use the name of Jesus randomly. In Ephesus, they saw Paul lay handkerchiefs or sweatbands upon people and they were healed. And so some of these itinerant exorcists were walking around and they would say, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, we adjure you. And they would, they would want to 
cast demons out. Well, there were seven sons of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva. And they walked up to a guy who was demon-possessed, and they said, In the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, we adjure you. The man who was demon-possessed, the demon spoke and said, Well, I know Paul, and Jesus we know, but who are you? It says the man who had the demon leaped upon the seven sons of Sceva and basically thrashed them. And they ran out of the house naked and wounded because they tried to use the name of Jesus as a magic charm. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus. It wasn't the Jesus that we know and preach. It's the Jesus that Paul preaches. It won't work that way. God has no grandsons, only children. It has to be a first person, personal relationship with God through Jesus. Now, if they would have said, if they would have been born again and preached Jesus and said, we command you in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we know, come out of him, would have worked. But it didn't work. And they were hurting puppies afterward. Now they said, the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now they were still high because of the local victories they've had from village to village. Jesus sees past the local victories and sees the whole war at large and sees that the victories that they have had is simply an indication of the dethroning of the devil who usurped his authority over God or tried to. He said, listen, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Okay, you've had some pretty awesome experiences. You saw demon subject. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now that's a very insightful sentence. Because so often people say, why would a God of love create such a malevolent, evil being? He didn't. The devil didn't start out as the devil. He started out as an angel. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 give us insight to that. Ezekiel 28 describes Satan as full of wisdom, the sum of beauty. You were perfect in your ways until iniquity was found in you. In Isaiah 14, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? You said in your heart, I will rise above the stars of God. I will set my throne up. And five times he says, I will, I will, I will. And God says, I will cast you down to hell. When Satan fell, he took a third of heaven with him. We call them demons. A third of the angelic hosts, Revelation 12 indicates, fell in the rebellion with Satan and became the minions or the demons in league with the devil. They're an organized group of beings in a network. There are principalities, there are powers, there's rankings of demonic beings in this world. Jesus said he saw it all. Our problem is we are fixated upon the third of the angels that fell and forget about the two-thirds who didn't. I am amazed at how many Christians are demon-obsessed. 
They're looking for demons here and demons there and the devil this and the devil that and watch out, the devil. Listen, two-thirds didn't fall. There's a lot more on your side than are against you. That ought to cause a lot of rejoicing. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Nevertheless, I love this. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The greatest miracle is not the casting out of a demon or the healing of a body. The greatest miracle is the saving of a soul and the enabling of your name to be written in God's eternal book. It's the greatest miracle. And that day Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Such simple people, these disciples. There was not one reverend among them. Not one reverend doctor, your holiness among them. Not one PhD, not one master's degree student. Simple, simple followers. And Jesus rejoiced that the Father made the gospel so simple that sometimes the intelligentsia stumble over it unless they become like little children and swallow their pride. But he revealed it to the babes. 1 Corinthians 1. What a text that is. You see your calling, brethren. There's not many mighty after the flesh, not many noble who are called. God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the weak things, to confound the wise and to bring to nothing those things that are mighty. Jesus thanks his Father. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows this, who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you have heard or hear what you hear and have not heard it. All the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about the Messiah coming. They longed for that age. Jesus said, you're there. You're seeing it. The fulfillment of what they wrote about. Behold, a certain lawyer. Uh-oh, a lawyer. Now, no lawyer jokes here. This is a little bit different from a modern-day lawyer. Stood up and tested him. Now, this does sound like a modern-day lawyer saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right question, wrong motive. Jesus doesn't need to take anybody's test. He could pass any of them. But the motivation was wrong. Now, rabbis were often accustomed to having public discussions or debates. And perhaps the most debated question among the Jews was this question of eternal life. How do you get to heaven? What do you do to have eternal life? But this guy asked this question to trap Jesus. Jesus will trap him. He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now Jesus sends this guy back to the law of Moses, the Old Testament scriptures. Now why is that? Not because you can be saved by the law, but the law shows you your need to be saved. That's why. 
Romans chapter 3, Paul says, No one is justified by the law, or by the law no flesh is justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. When you read the Ten Commandments or you read the law, you see, I haven't kept that one. Well, I haven't kept that one. I've blown it on that one. And it shows you your need. It doesn't make you feel smug. It makes you feel like you failed. And so he sends him back to the law because conviction must come before conversion. You have to see your need to be saved. So he takes him back to the law. What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Now, have you ever met anybody who's done this? Who's been able to consistently throughout their life love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and just incessantly keep that? I haven't. She said, right on. Do it. And you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because of that second part, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's been times you've slighted your neighbor and Jesus reads into this man's heart and says, do it and live. Now, the guy knew that he was in a corner. He was trapped. He was busted. That he hadn't kept what he said is the law. Oh, who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to answer the question. By the way, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which follows being a neighbor, answers the question, who is my neighbor? There are many fanciful interpretations of the Good Samaritan. Uh, people are fond of spiritualizing, allegorizing texts. They'll say, well, the man that went from Jerusalem to Jericho speaks about the Christian who backslides. And he seeks religious reform, and religious reform doesn't help, so he seeks this and that, and, and, and they try to tag this parable with all these meanings. That's not what it means. Jesus is simply trying to answer who one's neighbor is. We have to keep that in mind. And he does it in a very... A powerful way. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. I found it fascinating to be in Israel in a modern setting and be told by people, be careful when you go down to Jericho. And when I first heard that, I said, you got to be kidding. Still? said, oh yes, there's robbers on the road. They will try to overtake people who, and I, because I brought my um, bicycle there one time and I was bicycling around the uh, state of Israel. And I wanted to start at Jerusalem and go down to Jericho and then head up to the Galilee. They said, don't go that route. Go around, but don't go down. Now I wanted to go down because uh, it's a great descent. I'd hate to go up, but you're going from about 2,500 feet above sea level to 1,290 feet below sea level in about 20 miles. So it's like, it's a screaming downhill. And I thought, well, they'll never catch me. I said, don't go to Jericho. There have been reportings of robbings, lootings, and murders. I was amazed that things haven't changed that much on this road. Now by chance a certain priest came down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Big mistake. To make a Samaritan the hero of a Jewish story? The Jews don't like the Samaritans. There's been an ongoing rift between them for hundreds of years, ever since 721 B.C. Jesus makes the hero a Samaritan. And it's not a Samaritan taking care of a Samaritan or a Jew taking care of a Jew, but a Samaritan taking care of a Jew that other Jews forgot about and wouldn't care for. But Jesus knew what he was doing. The idea is this guy that everybody passed up was in need and even a Samaritan who was considered an enemy had enough sense to take compassion on him. That's who your neighbor is. Anybody who's in need that you happen to see and that you can help. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three? do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? You got a choice of three. It's a multiple choice answer. A, priest. B, Levite. C, Samaritan. Which is it? And the guy got it right. But he wouldn't say Samaritan. He said, he who showed mercy on him. He didn't even have the strength to say, the Samaritan was the best guy of the three. Just he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Oh, you want to know who your neighbor is? Let me tell you a story about what happened. Now go and do likewise. Very, very powerful way to bring home that truth. Now it happened. Oh, good. We're going to finish 10. Wow. This is, this is a hallmark. <laughs> now it happened as they went. He entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Women and men, don't be too hard on Martha. Have you ever had an important person over to your house? You want to impress the person. You want to work hard. You want the best food. And hey, this is an important person. God is coming over to dinner. What kind of a meal do you cook for him? And Martha just wants this to be just perfect for Jesus when he comes. And so it says, Martha welcomed him into her house. We make a mistake when we get to this story and we think that it's either Martha or it's Mary. And Martha's bad and Mary's good. There needs to be a balance. You need to work. But worship must be accompanied with your work or it will lead to worry, as it did with her. We need both Mary's and Martha's. The irony is this. Martha welcomed Jesus into the house and then neglected him. Left him to prepare a meal. You know, it's like, I'm a guest, it's like, uh, 
You know, I'm here to see you guys. I don't care about how fancy the dishes are, or if you're going to cook me filet mignon, or a nice salmon, or just a bag of potato chips. To Jesus, what you do with him is more important than what you do for him. I'm very convinced of that. I think there's a lot of things we can do in the kingdom of God and service, but what's more important to Jesus is what you do with him, not just what you do for him. Martha was distracted with much serving. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care? Have you ever said that to God? Oh, you have. (laughs) You've looked at something in your life that you think God has overlooked. God, you don't care, do you? you? You just don't care about me. You care about them. And then Martha went so far as to give Jesus Christ a commandment. She took out her frustration on Jesus. Tell her. I know people who do this when they pray. You know, she should have just said, Mary, would you help me out? But in her presence, Jesus, you tell her to help me. I think you can be awfully sneaky when you pray out loud in front of people. For instance, you could say, Lord, um, I pray for John, and I pray that you would help John to see that I am right in this argument, (laughs) and that I have the mind of Christ, and that John is, well, ungodly. You know it, and I know it. (laughs) Why don't you just come to John and say, John, my opinion is, rather than using God and his name to do your dirty work, So sneaky. Jesus answered and said, I love this, Martha, Martha. Twice. Why? It's always sort of a formula in the Bible for affection and relationship. When Abraham was about to kill his son, God said, Abraham, Abraham, don't kill your son. When Moses was before God at the burning bush, Moses, Moses, take your sandals off. When Jesus spoke to Peter, 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 Satan has been asking for you, but I prayed for you. It's always a term of endearment. Martha, Martha. In other words, hey, chill, Martha. It's me, Jesus, I love you. You are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken from her. Now, we're going to close. Don't worry. We're at the last couple verses. There is a contrast that you are meant to see. A contrast in verse 41 and 42 between many things and the one thing. She's worried about many things, but there's one thing that is needed. What are the many things? Clean house. Right food, right dishes, making everything just so. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's one thing that is needed or needful. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Action without adoration will lead to aggravation. I know a lot of people like this. They're the hardest workers. They're miserable to be around. Like we mentioned this morning, so busy about the king's business, they've neglected the king. They don't know how to hang out with God and enjoy him. 
Now, there's a balance. On one hand, Jesus sends out the 70 and says, don't even give these long greetings. Just do the work. On the other hand, he says, Martha, you're really worried and you're beaten up inside over these things. I like what Mary's doing. She's relaxing. She's enjoying me. Now, I thank God for Mary's and Martha's, and I think both are needed. I thank God for the Martha's in my life. And what I mean by that is the staff that I have who will counsel many of the people, who will do administrative things, who will do many of the things that I used to do, but now I'm freed up to study more. I thank God for them. They're busy working that I might be able to study and learn and glean that I might share, at least so that I'll have something to share, something worthwhile to share, not just an opinion. Now, why is it so needful? Zero in, and let's go home with that word, it is needed. There's one thing that is needed, and that is to be with Jesus at his feet. Why is it so needful? I'll tell you why. Number one, you are a spiritual being if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, there's nothing else that can satisfy you but intimacy with God. You are what Peter called a partaker of the divine nature. And no other experience, no other relationship can satisfy you like a relationship of intimacy with Jesus Christ. It is needful for you. Secondly, it is needful for you because you will face times of trial, of busyness, where you have to go, 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 grind, grind, grind. And so you need to prepare yourself by spending time with God. You need to sit in his presence so that you'll be able to stand before men. It is needful. This week, only God knows what's going to happen in our lives. God knows the future. He knows everything about us. We don't. Let's make it our habit of seeking him daily, of spending time. The Westminster Confession, I think it's the Westminster Confession, what is the chief end of man? To know God, to glorify God, and enjoy God forever. To enjoy him. Do you enjoy him? What do you mean enjoy him? I'm working for him. He's my boss. Yeah, but he's your Lord, the lover of your soul. Get refreshed. Get alone with him. Don't settle for anything but that intimacy with Jesus Christ. Martha welcomed Jesus in her home. Is Jesus welcomed in your home? Is he talked about at the dinner table? Is he talked about with your wife, your husband, your children? My son reminds me of this. My son is very visual. And, ooh, don't have much time. Um, he came to me the other night and he said, Dad, we haven't done say, play, and pray for a while. We need to do that. Now, lately, what we've been doing is just, I'll give him a, the, he reads the NIV, and he'll read a section of it, and we'll go over it, and we'll pray about it together. He, he and his mom will do that. 
But Nathan is a very visual learner, and when he like sees a movie or sees something on TV, he transforms into what he has seen. He becomes that superhero. And many times when he'd grow up, I'd say, well, Nathan, he'd go, I'm not Nathan. I'm Indiana Jones. Do not refer to me anymore as Nathan. Oh, no, man. So seeing that, I figured, you know, this kid would benefit from acting out Bible stories. So I invented a little game. We call it Say, Play, and Pray. We say it, we play it, and we pray it. Saying it means we read the text. Then we play it, we dress up in funny little costumes, and we act the part, David and Goliath, whatever. And then we pray about the lessons we've learned, because when you play it and act it out, a kid will remember it. And so we've gone into this, you know, more adult fashion, and, you know, he's still on this other page. He goes, hey, come on, let's just say play and pray. He just loves to do it. And I always want Jesus to be welcomed in our home where it's just natural. To, hey, let's meet with Jesus. Let's, let's have fun with God. Then let me ask you this in closing. Is Jesus welcomed in this home, in your heart? Have you received Jesus into the home of your life? Is he at home in your life? Would you be ashamed if you took Jesus to some of the places you go? Would you be ashamed for Jesus to see some of the things that you see? Is Jesus at home? It first starts by receiving him, asking him to be your Lord, asking him for forgiveness. Have you done that? If not, tonight is your night to give your heart to Jesus. Father, we are grateful for the time that we have spent in your word and We've covered a lot of ground. Father, I pray that the things that you want us to glean, especially for this week, would be brought into the situations that we will face this week, and you'd cause them to be remembered by us and to be used by us during the weeks and days ahead. Lord, I pray that we would work for you, but we would worship you, and that our work for you would be based upon our worship of you and our time spent with you and our love for you. So many of us, Lord, need a refreshment of just sitting at your feet and enjoying you and knowing that they serve a God who loves them and wants them to enjoy him. Free us, Father, tonight and this week. And Father, we pray for those who don't know Jesus yet that this would be a time of repentance and receiving Jesus Christ into the heart, into the home of the heart. Before we close, real briefly, but if you're here tonight and you're not certain about your walk with God, but you would like tonight to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ and invite him into your life, into your heart, I'd like you to raise your hand right now wherever you are. 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 Raise your hand right now wherever you are.